All right, good morning. So you might be wondering, why is he up there already? Well, we want to keep you on your toes. Uh, <laughs> everyone's kind of got like the preconceived perception of how church should be and the order in which we got to do things. Fast song, medium song, slow song, announcements. And then the guy with the mic comes up and he tells you something good about Jesus and then you go home and you're happy and you have a great lunch together. Well, we want to mix it up a little bit today. Uh, and keep, like I said, keep you on your toes. And so we're going to uh, jump straight into the scripture this morning and then we're going to respond in worship a little bit later. But we're going to have some fun. Uh, this week I had the opportunity to uh, hang out with one of our community groups and we were going through the book of Jonah and it kind of sparked my my passion my interest back into the Old Testament it felt like I hadn't engaged with it for a while so this Sunday is a little bit different than pre- previous Sundays or in Sundays to come in the sense that we don't have a, we didn't have a preset passage we didn't have it as part of a, uh, a series we just had this kind of one-off Sunday that I got to be creative with. And creative freedom is wonderful, but it's also a little bit like terrifying about like what do you want to actually talk about? Is it actually going to be meaningful? Does it mean something just to me? Is it going to mean something to you? Uh, and I kind of like a little bit of structure, but I was really excited about the idea of engaging with the story in the Old Testament that I think majority of us will have heard at some point, but is not exactly what it seems. So, uh, we're going to go right into the scripture, and we're going to go into 1 Samuel chapter 17. 1 Samuel chapter 17. So if this feels a little bit odd because you're like, I haven't been woken up by music just yet, good. I hope it, it keeps you on your toes that you're engaged, that you're with me. You got to be just as awake as I am right now. I know it's a little chilly in here, but maybe the cold will keep you nice and awake. All right. 1 Samuel chapter 17. We're going to start in verse 1. It's a large portion of text, so I'm just going to read the first seven verses. And it says this. It says, Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Ezekah in Ephes Damim, and Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah. A lot of words. And they drew up a line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. Modern-day estimations actually put him around six foot nine, uh, based upon historical documents. Dead Sea Scrolls are a part of that context. Uh, and there's a historian named Josephus in the first century that makes this claim as well, about six nine. And when we talked about Zacchaeus a couple weeks ago, you'll remember that I mentioned that height was not exactly the average as it is today. It was a little bit shorter, so bear with me on that. Verse 5, it says that Goliath had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze, about 125 pounds. And he had a bronze, ar- bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, but two inches in diameter. And his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and that was about 15 pounds. And his shield bearer went before him, and he stood, and he shouted to the ranks of Israel. This is Goliath speaking. And he says, why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not a servant of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. 
And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. Now this invitation to single combat, it's not a foreign one. It's not an uncommon one in ancient times. And when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and they were greatly afraid. All right, let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this morning and for this moment. Thank you for the opportunity to engage with this text. I just pray that our hearts are open and ready to receive something new and something fresh this morning. Thank you for uh, this space and for keeping us warm and keeping us uh, healthy, Jesus. We're just so grateful that here in November, there is sunshine outside. I refuse to take that for granted. And so we're going to enjoy this moment and we're going to enjoy this morning together and we're going to discover you in this text. We're so grateful. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. The uh, idea of, of story has been really significant to me this week because I think our lives are an incredible story. There's this quote from Frederick Buechner, and he says that our stories are all stories of searching, that we're all searching for something. We're searching for, for moments of significance, moments of impact, moments where we feel like we matter, moments that we can actually make a difference in situations. And we are searching on a day-to-day basis for these moments to make our lives mean something. And it's an incredible story that we're on. And the story that we're working through on a day-to-day basis, uh, sometimes we make ourselves seem less than we are. And we, we don't, we're often our, our harshest critics, is that fair to say? We can be pretty hard on ourselves. We can put ourselves at the lowest rung, and and that's why I think the idea of an underdog story is one that really captures us. Like, we resonate with it. We get the idea of an underdog story. It excites us. It engages us. It it, it gets us involved in, in the conversation. And this story in particular, many of us are familiar with, is of an underdog story that we know really, we know really well from a long time ago. It's of a duel 3,000 years ago in Palestine. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to lay out a little bit of context around it because I think this story is not what it seems. It's maybe not as we know it. So bear with me. This is just like a little bit of like an information barrage. So it's a good place to start to know that from a geographical point of view, Palestine, Palestine and Israel, there's a mountain range on the eastern border. You can see it there, a mountain range on the eastern border where you find all of the ancient traditional major cities of of Jerusalem, of Bethlehem, of of Hebron, and those major cities that were where Israel was found. And then on the western plain, you would have where you'd see Tel Aviv, and it was the coastal region. But in between all of it was this area called the Shefla, and it's a series of valleys and ridges that connect the plain and it has this reputation for being incredibly beautiful, filled with oak trees and vineyards and wheat fields. And it was also the most strategically crucial part of the country because if you were going to access the mountains, you'd have to go through the plain. And what ended up happening is that time and time again, they had to fight a battle for control of the Shefla, the space in the middle. And this is what's happening 3,000 years ago between the Philistines and the Israelites because the Philistines are the historic enemies of the people of Israel and they occupy the plain. They come from Crete, they're seafaring people, they've occupied Tel Aviv and they've made the decision that we want to conquer Israel. And so they make their way towards the mountains and then 
King Saul, he hears of this journey that they're making, and he comes to face them, and they, they, make, they meet halfway in the Sheflon. They come to the Valley of Elah, and then they come to this valley, and they occupy either side of it. And they start staring at each other. And they haven't decided to deal with this issue through a staring contest. But they have realized that if whoever is going to engage first, it's going to come at a really high cost. Because if we've learned anything from Anakin and Obi-Wan, we know that whoever has the higher ground has the advantage. I have to, I have to slip a Star Wars reference in there every once in a while. And so they understood to do so would be to expose themselves to the enemy. And so it was a deadlock. And then finally the Philistines make a decision that we are going to do something about this. And they send Goliath. And they send Goliath and he challenges the people of Israel. And he says that they need to send their greatest warrior. And they would go mano a mano. And they would go at it. And the winner would be the victor. And the losing army would have to be the slaves. And it's this dramatic story placed before us. And, and the people of Israel, they're, they're frightened and they're afraid because he's too big. He's too ferocious. He's too well equipped. He's almost seven feet tall. And no one would take him on except this kid. And this kid shows up and he says that, let me fight him. Let me deal with with this giant. And King Saul, he, he hears him and he says, what are you talking about? You're just a kid. And he says, you can't deal with this giant. And I love the fact that he says, no, I'm not just a kid. I, I, I've prepared for this moment. I'm a shepherd. I've killed a lion in my day, a bear in my day. I, I'm prepared for this moment. And they go back and forth until finally Saul's just like, there's no one else that's willing to volunteer in this moment. So I'm going to have to let him deal with the situation. And, and, and Saul, he, he, he tries to help and he offers his armor in that moment. And, and David says, no, that armor doesn't feel natural. It doesn't fit me. And David instead, he goes and he picks up stones, puts in his pouch, heads down the hill into the valley, sees the giant in the distance, winds up his slingshot, and fires it. Hits Goliath square in the forehead, knocks him over, falls to the ground. The crowd goes wild. He runs over, grabs him by the head, chops off his head, and he says, are you not entertained? Goes full Maximus. And it's this dramatic sequence of events of this ultimate underdog story. And it's perhaps the, the greatest like slingshot story in the history of mankind. Maybe, maybe it's only contested by that video from The Amazing Race where the lady's trying to pull like the watermelon in the slingshot and it like backfires. That's maybe in contention as well. It's one of those videos that once you watch once, you feel like you have to watch multiple times just to enjoy it to its fullest. Anyways. It's at least the second highest, second greatest slingshot moment in the history of mankind. But it's, it's this moment that we know so well. And, and our perception of it changes the way in which we engage with it. 
because we know it as a certain story. And, and I would say this. I would say that the idea of, of David and Goliath, this underdog story, this slingshot story, is not exactly as it seems. But we, like I said, we love underdog stories. Hollywood loves underdog stories. Miracle with Lake Placid. Uh, Rudy, remember the Titans. When Ryan Gosling finally gets on the field, you're cheering for him. We love these underdog stories. And they're always like seemingly tied with sports. Like even we have our own underdog stories. And mine are always tied with sports. I I remember like I I went back to my, my elementary school and got to see it. And when we remember things from our, our childhood, things are always on a much bigger scale, right? You remember fields being larger. You remember houses being larger. And I remember this one field in particular that we would play on every recess in elementary school, that it being this massive soccer field. It's not a massive soccer field. It's like a quarter of the size. But yet, I have this like, amazing underdog memory tied to it. Picture with me. Small layer of snow on the ground, mist in the field. Grade sixes, they dominate this field. Grade twos, they make their way onto this field. I am one of the grade twos. And we got beat up every, every recess, every lunch hour. We got it handed to us, but we kept on going back kept on going back, kept on going back, and they got so arrogant and so cocky, so cocky that we were playing, in our, we were playing one, one lunch hour, and it was the end of the lunch hour. We knew our time was coming to a close, and they had pulled their goalie even. They were just like firing goal after the goal in our net, and the ball skids into this open space, open net, other side of the field. My moment of glory is upon me. And I start running, and I start running, and I kick with all my might. Both feet come out from under me. As I kick this ball, send it flying, I don't even see it go as I land flat on my back. And then I just hear the cheer from the grade twos all around the field. They dogpile on me. This is the greatest moment of my life. (laughs) But it's this underdog story. That we all want it, we all, we all crave it, and we all resonate with it. And, and we, we want it, we want to experience this underdog moment, and we look at the story of David and Goliath, and we're like, yeah, we get that. We would be really excited too. But why is David considered an underdog? Why are we calling him a long shot? Because he's a kid? Because he's probably very unassuming as he makes his way onto the field. Because it doesn't seem like he has anything to really set him apart. I think the reason why we consider him an underdog more than anything is actually the weapon that he brings to the battle. That we categorize him as an underdog because we don't understand what a slingshot really is. And we always, all David has is a sling. All he has is a sling. And this is like the statement that we make for all underdogs, is all you have is a blank. A little bit of money, a dream, an idea, an opportunity. 
a, medio, a mediocre amount of physical prowess and able to, to do what you dream that you could think you could do. All David has is a sling. But here's the thing. We're quick to write off different things based upon what we know about them because perception is the way that we operate. The way we perceive something is the manner in which we use that something. For example, when I, when I hold this cup, what comes to mind? Beer. A cup that holds liquid. <laughs> that is perhaps used for a game or two. But did you know that it's more than simply a cup that holds liquid, but it's a cup that indicates volume, that the crevice here indicates one ounce, this here indicates five ounces, and this here indicates 12 ounces. Funny. Aluminum foil. Common household item. We all recognize what it is. Did you know, and I just found this out this week, this is fascinating, there are actually like holes on the side of it that are meant to like hold the roll in place as you take, take it out. It's not just to hold the foil, it's so that you can roll out the foil really like nicely. Who would have thunk it? <laughs> and maybe I'm just learning these things for the first time and you're just seeing me like a ch child on Christmas morning. That I'm just learning all these things by myself. Uh, there's, there's another one. What was, what was the other one? The other one was, oh yeah. Uh, let's, let's throw up the picture of on our dashboard. Yes. Okay. So, dashboard indicates fuel. How much we have. Fair enough. On many dashboards, though, it's not just a fuel indicator. There's often, do you guys have it on yours that there's an arrow beside the little fuel indicator? That's not just telling you how much fuel is in your car. It tells you which side of your car the fuel tank is. Magical. <laughs> I know. And this, this is the last one that like, really got me because in my household, the drawer under the oven was always just a space where you kept your pans. Did you know it's actually meant to warm stuff up? You all knew that. <laughs> so like these, so the, the way that we perceive things changes the way that we use them. Is that fair to say? The way that we understand them changes the way we use them. Oh, we have bread in the oven. Okay. Okay, <laughs> last one, last one. I just had so much fun, like, researching these this week. Uh, we have, when we have a matador and a bull, we've got this preconceived notion, this, 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 this concept that a bull is drawn into anger by the color red. That is not true at all because bulls are colorblind. <laughs> They don't care what color it is. It's the flourish of the matador. So if you're a matador and you're just holding that red satchel or whatever, piece of cloth right in front, it's not going to do anything. You have to know that's all about how you use it in order for it to be effective. So our, concept, our concepts and the way that we perceive things impacts the way that we use them. And, and I, I would say this, the manner in which you use something doesn't reduce its true potential, but when we perceive it incorrectly, we reduce its actual impact. You need to know what something is designed for in order to use it to its full potential. And the same can be said for the statement, all David had was a sling.
So ancient armies, they had three types of warrior classes in that time period. They had, uh, they had artillery, they had heavy infantry, and then they had cavalry. Cavalry had, were warriors on horses, heavy in- infantry were foot soldiers with full armor and shields, and then artillery were d- individuals with arrows and also this group called slingers. And, and slingers were an active element of warfare. And slingers had a leather pouch which had two long, stro- uh, long ropes attached to it. And they would spin it around and release one of the strings and the rock would, pro- would propel it forward. And most of the time when we hear the story of David and Goliath, we kind of picture it as like a Hello Kitty, ages three plus kind of slingshot. We, we don't think of it as something that's actually going to cause any damage. But David did not have a slingshot, he had a sling. And that is very different and a far more lethal weapon. So we've had people who've studied slings over time, and just like any category in which people study it intensely, they're called sling nerds. Um, And they've done all the calculations, and we know that an experienced slinger would rotate that sling six or seven times a second, and which uh, would rotate it six or seven times a second. And if you do the math, the rock would travel at 35 meters per second. And so if Goliath is 100 feet away and is traveling at 35 meters per second, that rock hits in less than a second. Dead center, knocks him out. Okay. And the, the second thing about this is that the type of rock in that region that's being used is not, is not just any kind of rock. It's called, uh, I'm going to get it right. It's called barium sulfate. And they did a ballistic study on it. And it turns out that it has the stopping power of a 45 caliber handgun. This is a serious weapon. And so when we know all the details around it, the reality is David brought a gun to a knife fight. Now what about accuracy? Well, we know that slingers were incredibly accurate because they'd knock birds out of the sky. No problem. And we know that David was experienced because he'd spent time as a shepherd defeating bears and lions. So he brought a gun to a knife fight. And then the idea of a slinger versus a heavy infantry, that, that was actually what you wanted to do in warfare. If you were facing an army of heavy infantry, you'd bring an army of artillery and you'd deal with them from a distance. So the thing that we perceive as David's weakness, as David's undoing, as as the thing that marks him as the underdog is actually his point of strength. It's actually the thing that gives him his advantage. The way that we perceive things matters so much. David had been anointed king of Israel. And then the story seems to almost go silent for a bit of time until we see him again on that battlefield. And there's this this silence, and sometimes we, we associate silence with absence and absence with abandonment when we think of God. That we have moments in our life where we hear God speak to us so clearly. That we think that he said so clearly we need to be doing this, and we step into it with boldness and with confidence, and then it just seems like it goes silent. September 2015, I had a moment where I felt like God spoke so clearly and honestly, and I felt like I was being beat over the head by a frying pan for three months, and then he went silent. I didn't hear anything for all of 2016. I didn't think that God was even in it anymore. But the absence of God does not mean that he's abandoned you. 
Because if David had perceived that absence in between the moment of anointing and the moment with the army, then he would not have taken advantage of the time in between. That time of preparation for the, for the battle to come. So we have a guy that, who's changed the rules. Brought a gun to a knife fight. He has superior technology, and he's filled with the Spirit of the Lord, yet we insist on calling him an underdog. Why isn't he the favorite? New rules, better technology, God in his heart. Wouldn't that make him the favorite? And I like to contend that this underdog story is mixed up. And it's actually not an under, a story about an underdog with the sling, but it's actually about the arrival of the anointed king. And Goliath was the one with the disadvantage. And it's just, it's just not the case that we've, we've misunderstood the advantage that David has in this situation, but we've misunderstood Goliath. Because there's a series of incidents in this, in this story that seem to tell us something different than Goliath being this mighty warrior. There's an individual named Malcolm Gladwell who interacts with this story in a really unique way. He, he, he deals with this story looking at perhaps Goliath is not all that he was made out to be. He's led down to the field by an attendant. It's like he's being led by hand down to the field. He, he sees... David coming down the field to meet him. But if we look at what David has in his hands, there is no intention of actually engaging in hand-to-hand combat. He says very loudly, come to me. He feels disrespected. And he says, am I a dog that you would come at me with sticks? David's only got one stick in his hand. And this is what he proposes. This is what he proposes. With a team of endocrinologists, he, he came to this possible conclusion that the thing that gave Goliath his great stature was actually the thing that was leading to his weakness. That often individuals who have that kind of advantage of, of great size, they suffer from something called acromegaly. And what it is, it's a tumor on your pituitary gland that forces the over-excretion of the human growth hormone. So this is a common thing in gigantism. Our favorite giants of the day, Andre the Giant, famous Canadian, suffered from it. The tallest man in history, 8 foot 11, suffered from it and died from it. So it's quite likely that Goliath actually had this issue. And the interesting thing about this, this actual issue is it encroaches on a specific part of our brain dealing with the optic nerves leading to restricted vision. So suddenly, Goliath is this individual with massive stature who has restricted vision who's having to be led out on the field because he doesn't want to trip over a rock on his way down. That he can't see in the distance that his opponent is actually the very thing that is meant to counteract him. And that when he says, am I a dog that you would come at me with sticks? Well, it's because he has double vision. He's seeing as if he has two sticks. 
And the very thing that seemed to be intimidating the people of Israel who were standing on the hillside was actually the thing that they needed to recognize was his weakness. That he, he couldn't see properly. The way that we perceive things is powerful. Because the truth is, Goliath is the one with the disadvantage. David, in the story, has killed lions. He's prepared for this moment. He was anointed as the future king of Israel, and he was seizing the moment. He's coming in the name of Almighty God, and David wasn't coming in with blind confidence, but an assurance of preparation, of purpose, and of calling. He was anointed for such a time as this. But we prefer the story of the underdog with David and Goliath because we resonate more with that. We always feel like the underdog in our own stories. We always feel like the odds are stacked against us, that our preparation, our calling, our purpose, and our passion, they, they leave us lacking. And in some ways, we go into this story hoping as if for David going into our battlefield, facing our giants, that we would come with an inadequate weapon and it would be a miracle would take place and we would find the victory. And yes, there are moments in our lives where that's the case. But to live in a perpetual state of I am forever an underdog, all it does is create a chip on our shoulder and an inability to be, have contentment in the moment. I think that we've mixed up the story and that we've actually got it wrong. Ooh. All right, we're in it. That we've actually missed, we've actually missed the mark. That when it comes to the story of, of David and Goliath, we like to place ourselves as the underdog in this story. But when we find out that David was not actually the underdog, David was not the individual that we thought he was. He brought a gun to a knife fight. Goliath was not the giant that we think that he is. That the victory was actually assured the minute that David came down. And we kind of hope and we pray that I, I could be the hero of my own story. And that's something we so desire, but it becomes a burden that we fight for, that I want to be the hero of my own story, but that is not a burden that we're expected to bear. And I, I would contend that we're not David going down into the battlefield, but we are the army of Israel standing on the hillside. That we're terrified and we're afraid and we look down into the valley and we see Goliath in the distance and we see the thing that we're struggling with at a distance and we are so overwhelmed by it. We're terrified by it. We're mortified at the idea of facing it. And we know that on the other side of that valley is this freedom, is this victory, but we can't get past this giant. And for 40 days and 40 nights, uh, it's a number that is significant, a trial in the Bible. They stare at this giant and they're mocked and they're taunted by this giant. And it wasn't until their champion came that they found some hope. That David goes onto that battlefield and he, and he whips around that sling and he takes out Goliath. And then he turns back to them and the thing that they did next was they let out a shout. How long had they been silent? How long had they, had, had they kept quiet because of the fear that they felt on the hillside? That they saw the giants in the valley because the truth is we're not David. That Jesus is our David. He's a type of David. 
The New Testament talks about it. That he's this unassuming, unexpected individual who interjects himself into our story. That as we stand on the hillside looking down into the valley, overwhelmed by the giant of sin before us, we don't know what to do about it, and he, he comes, comes to us. He's sent by his father, Jesse, to go to the front lines, just like God the Father sent Jesus to us. That he comes to the front lines, that he, that he empathizes with us, that he hears our pain, that he experiences our struggle in that moment, and he comes and he feels that alongside of us. And as he does that, he then says, don't worry about it. I don't need the armor that you think you need. I don't need to experience all the things that you need to think you need to experience. I am going to go down into that valley and I'm going to fight for you. And Jesus goes down into that valley and, and he faces the giant on our behalf. And there's so many indicators in this story that Jesus is our David. That Jesus is the hero in this story. That he goes to that giant. That giant of sin. That, that mo mocking, taunting giant. That says that your sin won the day. Your mistake, it's, it's pushed you too far. Your doubt, it can't be dealt with. Because that's what sin does. It mocks us. It taunts us. It prevents us from moving forward and it, it leaves us in this state of, of, of being terrified on the hillside, unable to step into who we're called to be. And, and we're wondering, how do we deal with this? And I love the simple fact that Jesus goes before us. He goes down into our valley and he faces that giant of sin. And he wins the victory for us. But he doesn't just win it and then move on without us. But he goes and he makes sure that we realize that sin is dead. That there is no resurrection of that sin. That mistake that you think you made that is going to keep on popping up, it has no hold on you. It does not define you. He grabs Goliath by the head and he cuts off his head. Just as Jesus grabs sin and cuts off the head of the dragon. And then he turns back and he declares a victory. And the people, of the men and the women of Israel, they declare a shout. And this is what Jesus brings to us. He says, look to me. And have your life say something different. What would happen if we started to treat situations differently knowing that our Jesus has already gone and won the victory before us? That Jesus is our David, that he goes and he is not ill-equipped. He goes and he does exactly what he needs to do to set us free. How would we live our lives differently? How would we treat people differently? How would we think differently? How would we perceive the world differently? How would we move forward into tomorrow with that stance, with that notion in our mind that suddenly we know that our victory is won? David was not the underdog, just as Jesus was not the underdog. That he came with passion, came with purpose, came with, with a clear pursuit of you and of, you, of me.
that he knows us by name and he, he came so that we might have relationship with him. And I love this picture of David winning this battle on our behalf. Of Jesus winning this battle on our behalf. And then calling us forward with confidence, with boldness, with excitement to step into this freedom on the other side of that valley. So what's the giant that we're facing in our own minds, in our own, own situations? That thought, that mistake, that doubt, that concern. What is it that taunts us, that mocks us, that says, I'm not going anywhere? That, that addiction that we struggle with that we can't seem to break. That thought process that kind of seems to always linger. Because that's what it does. It mocks us from the valley. It seems bigger than it really is. And this morning, I just want you to know that that battle has already been fought for you. That victory's already been won for you. That our hope is found in Jesus Christ. That he took five stones. Five is, is this number of grace in the Bible. And Jesus came with grace and with love more than enough. Didn't need any armor that we think we might need. Didn't have a BuzzFeed article with five steps to get it right. Didn't have a self-help book to suddenly do, get his life, life right in the right situation. To suddenly defeat death. He came with grace and with love. And that was enough to find hope in him. Would you stand with me? So I don't know where you find yourself this morning and what you perceive as that giant in the valley, but I do, say, I do think that we all carry something, that we all struggle with something. And I want you to consider the response of the Israelites. When they looked and they saw that Jesus had won the victory, they let out a shout. They let out this shout of victory, of confidence, and of boldness. So we're going to sing, and we're going to declare His goodness, and we're going to worship, and we're going to give Him His due.